Radio Catskill. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, Sullivan County Head Start. It closed abruptly last week and folks have been scratching their heads as to why. Yesterday, the director of the Office of Head Start at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services provided a statement. We'll hear, you'll hear that and get the latest. Sullivan 180 fighting for a healthier generation. They're looking for warrior teens who are ready to battle for health. And they are also providing us information on how to combat the epidemic of e-cigarettes and Yule among our youth. The Ashokan Watershed Stream Management Program hosts a film premiere exploring the Upper Esopus Creek watershed. We'll get a preview from the filmmakers and the educational coordinators who brought it to life. And a Catskill Carnival, My Borscht Belt Life Lived, Lost and Loved. We speak to Bart Charlo, who grew up in a local family hotel back in the day. But first, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Senate is scheduled to take a procedural vote today on a border security bill that looks all but dead. The bipartisan measure was negotiated for months. Congressional Republicans had demanded the bill, saying they would not pass any aid for Ukraine or Israel unless a border measure was attached, too. But former President Donald Trump called on Republicans to oppose the measure, and House Speaker Mike Johnson says his chamber will not take it up. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell seemed to accept its fate. We had a very robust discussion about whether or not this product could ever become law. And it's been made pretty clear to us uh, by the speaker that it will not become law. Now, some top Republican senators are reversing themselves. They say they want to take up a bill to help Israel and Ukraine without a border measure attached. Meanwhile, House Republicans say they will try again to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. They failed to do so yesterday in a close vote. GOP lawmakers allege he has violated federal law by allowing millions of migrants to illegally cross the border. He has denied this. Polling continues to show voters largely disapprove of President Biden's job performance. A new survey from NPR, the PBS NewsHour, and Marist finds Americans don't like the president's handling of major issues such as immigration and the U.S. economy. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has more. The president gets just a 41% approval rating when it comes to the economy. But that's actually up three points from last month, with inflation continuing to soften and job growth beating expectations. The White House has to hope the good economic news continues and people start to get more positive about it in this election year. But Biden really takes a hit when it comes to immigration. Just 29% approve of his handling of it. It's why the president eagerly wants a deal on border security with Congress, but that's become more difficult by his likely opponent, former President Trump's opposition to the bill. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. Stocks opened higher this morning as the Commerce Department reported a widening of the nation's trade deficit in December. NPR's Scott Horsley reports the Dow Jones Industrial Average rose about 80 points in early trading. The U.S. trade gap grew by half a percent in December to $62.2 billion. Exports and imports were both up during the month, but the dollar value of imports rose more. Stock in Ford Motor Company opened higher after the automaker raised its first quarter dividend. Ford also says it's scaling back its investment in manufacturing new electric vehicles. New York Community Bank Corp. has named a new executive chairman. The bank stock has been pummeled in recent days over concerns about its loans to commercial real estate. Earlier this week, Moody's bond rating service downgraded the bank's long-term debt to junk status. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 80 points. This is NPR. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Tel Aviv today. He's met with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Blinken will also go to the West Bank to meet Palestinian leaders. This comes a day after Hamas expressed support for a deal that could create a pause in fighting in Gaza. Plant scientists have come up with a tomato that is striking for its vivid purple color and for its enhanced health benefits. As Boise State Public Radio's Sasha Woodruff reports, This is the first time that home gardeners, not just commercial growers, can buy genetically modified seeds directly. 
The purple tomato was developed by Norfolk Plant Sciences in the United Kingdom. Scientists inserted two genes from a snapdragon flower into a cherry tomato to increase its levels of the antioxidant anthocyanin. That's the pigment that gives blueberries, blackberries, and eggplant their color and gives them status as superfoods. It's no different from any other tomato, except it has certain capabilities. That were developed through biotechnology. That's Nathan Pumplin, CEO of Norfolk's American subsidiary, selling the seeds stateside. Many scientists say genetically modified plants could create healthier food as well as varieties more adaptable to a changing climate. For NPR News, I'm Sasha Woodruff. More rain is falling in northern and southern California. At least seven people have been killed in the storms that have pounded the state in the past several days. Officials in Los Angeles say they've gotten a foot of rain, and there have been nearly 500 mudslides around the city. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. And the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at RWJF.org. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Nearly 400 families are without childcare, and about 100 providers are without employment after the Sullivan County Head Start program abruptly closed. Sullivan County Head Start posted a message late last week saying it had closed until further notice due to unforeseen circumstances. Dan Hu, Sullivan County Communications Director, said on Monday afternoon in a statement that county officials were working with stakeholders, Head Start staff, and others to address the situation. Yesterday, Carrie Garvin, director of the Office of Head Start at the Administration for Children and Families at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, provided a statement via Zoom to the community regarding the closure of Sullivan County Head Start Incorporated, but didn't take any questions. Here's that full statement. Welcome to all of you, and thank you so much, rather, for、uh, convening at such short notice. We、uh, have brought you together this afternoon to provide an update on the status of Head Start Services. Uh, that are being administered by the nonprofit called Sullivan County Head Start Incorporated, with administrative offices in Woodbourne, New York, and also operating three Head Start preschool sites across Sullivan County. I do want to point out that we will not,、uh, for the sake of time and, and for the volume of、uh, guests that we have today, we will not、uh, be taking questions today, but remain committed, of course, to keep you, the community,、uh, updated as much as we can on. Uh, the status of Head Start services for Sullivan County in New York. I also want to just point out that as eager as we all are to understand what has occurred here over the last few days, I just want to remind us all that there are real families and real children and real staff from this community whose circumstances have abruptly been interrupted. So I just want us to keep that in mind as well as we continue、um, uh, moving forward. Uh, but Sullivan County Head Start's program leadership notified the Region Two Office of Head Start very late last week、uh, to make us aware that they were closing the program temporarily, and they also let the Office of Head Start know at that time that they had already notified staff and families of their intention to close the program temporarily. Earlier that same week, or earlier last week. Uh, the program also made it known that、uh, they were running short on federal funding that was getting in the way of their ability to continue services. So I just want to emphasize that this decision to temporarily、uh, suspend services or to to, to temporarily、uh, cease operation was a decision that was made solely by Sullivan County Head Start's program leadership, and it is not and was not an action that was. Either required or initiated by the Office of Head Start. Now, since the time of Sullivan County Head Start's notification to the Office of Head Start very late last week, we, the Office of Head Start, have met with that program's leadership twice now to lay out options for a pathway forward from their decision to temporarily close. And on those occasions, when we have met with Of、uh, the program, the Office of Head Start has explained that we will need them to give a response as soon as possible, so that we can keep things progressing forward. Now, the Office of Head Start 
is now considering next steps to ensure that the services for the children and families of Sullivan County can continue as quickly as possible. And our ability to do that, our ability to keep that commitment is really contingent upon our ability to have ongoing dialogue with Sullivan County Head Start, as well as their responsiveness. Now, in general, in situations like this, the Office of Head Start has options that we pursue when transitions like this one occur in communities. And these options include, for example, deploying an interim provider to administer services until such time as an entity can be identified to continue services more regularly. So our commitment, we at the Office of Head Start, we our commitment is to preserve Head Start services in this community for as long as there is a need for services in this community. So to say that in other terms, uh, there is no desire, there is no interest, there is no plan to remove Head Start services or to remove Head Start funding from Sullivan County. We, the, the funding, the services will remain and we will continue to work either with uh, Sullivan County Head Start Inc. or any other entity that is willing and able to uh, continue services in this community. So I wanna make sure that that is clear as well. Now, it is difficult to determine in this exact moment and on this exact date uh, when services will resume because there are several factors that have an impact on these sorts of transitions, including, for example, uh, the time that's required for an interim provider to transition facilities licenses into their own name so that they can legally operate in the service area. Uh, another uh, 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 another uh, transition activity that takes a bit of time is the process, for example, um, uh, clearing um, criminal background checks for staff to be hired to work now for this new interim provider, even if they worked previously for uh, the uh, the current provider. Still, as they are now would be new employees with, with a new entity, uh, they would have to then uh, have a, a new uh, certification to make sure that they are still in good standing to be employed. So these are just some of the dynamics that, that do take uh, some time. And so, again, cannot tell you in this moment exactly when services will resume, but repeating myself, uh, we are as interested in, as anyone in getting services resumed as quickly as possible. In this moment, I do want to just pause to say thank you to um, Sullivan County Head Start Services, Inc. Uh, this, this entity, this agency has provided uh, great Head Start services for over four decades. Uh, and they really have been a, a good program and a strong program for this service area. So we want to thank them. But as we continue working together to uh, to identify what's next, we just want to make sure that we all uh, understand what the path forward is. Again, cannot uh, answer any specific que or any questions at all, frankly, uh, today. But our commitment is to keep the community informed, and we can do that in a variety of ways. We may uh, uh, host another uh, a forum like this, or there may be other ways for us to engage, uh, but you do have my commitment and the commitment of the office that we will make sure that we have timely communication. So with that, I want to thank you for your attention and your presence here today. And this concludes our session. Thank you, everyone. That was uh, Kari Garvin, Director of Office of Head Start at the Administration for Children and Families at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services on a Zoom call yesterday. And as can be seen and heard in the video from yesterday, no questions were taken during that call. County legislators continue to legislators continue to seek a meeting with leadership of the federal Head Start office, they say. It's unclear what alternatives effective, affected families have in Sullivan County, where Reminding you, the poverty rate is 16.4% here, according to U.S. Census data, higher than the national average of 11.5%. Executive Director Bertha G. Williams told the River Reporter that the facility closed because of a lack of funding. Sullivan County legislator Louis Alvarez also said the closure of Sullivan County Head Start was due to a financial issue. On Monday evening, Representative Mark Molinero, who represents the district, said Sullivan County Head Start received about $3.6 million in federal funding to operate through March 31st. And another award for approximately the same amount would have been awarded to the program to continue past March 31st if they applied. As of now, it's unclear if they did apply, Molinero said. He called the closure abrupt and unexpected and said it should never have happened. Sullivan County said it will provide additional information when it's available, and anyone needing assistance should call the county's Health and Human Services office at 845-292-0100.
Sullivan County Health and Human Services is at 845-292-0100. And for anyone looking to express their concerns to federal level, level leadership of Head Start, uh, the Sullivan County government supplied a link on their Facebook page. Concerns and complaints, they say, can be submitted anonymously with your name attached or not. We'll take a break and when we come back, Sullivan 180, looking for Sullivan teen youth warriors to help with combating health problems in the county. This is Radio Chatskill. This week on the Retro Cocktail Hour, we've escaped to the islands for the annual All Exotica Show. We've got tunes by Martin Denny, Big Kahuna and the Copa Cat Pack, and the Waitiki 7. I'm Daryl Brogdon. Join me where the music's always shaken, not stirred. The Retro Cocktail Hour. Coming up tonight at 7 on Radio Catskill. On the next Radio Lab. Good scientists, they have the minds of children. One man's pursuit. He set up a chemistry lab when he was 12. Changed the very air we breathe. Holy smokes. This hideous crime we were committing. Gleaming rock. It's everywhere. Turns into like thorium, then turns into radon, and turns into bismuth. It's accidental. The majesty of God's hand. From Radio Lab, Heavy Metal. This afternoon at 1 on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Sullivan 180 is fighting for a healthier generation, fostering and supporting community efforts to improve the health of all residents. Amanda Langsetter is here from Sullivan 180 to tell us about some of the latest efforts in that bigger effort. Oh my gosh, it's a big effort and a big (laughs) undertaking, a heavy lift, but it takes all of us in the community to to really empower the health of the next generation. One thing you're tackling, which is a big epidemic among youth, e-cigarettes and and Yule and the vaping. Tell us about some of those things that you're doing to help tackle that problem. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. So so, um, certainly vaping has really become an epidemic amongst youth and we know that a large amount of youth are trying these really just out of curiosity. You know, they don't know much about them. There's all these great flavors from cotton candy and razzmatazz, um, you name it, Bananarama. They've got all these wild flavors that are not geared towards adults. They're geared towards young people, towards our youth, and it's really unfair. It's really setting them up uh, for an addiction to nicotine. We know that literally all of these e-cigarettes have nicotine in them. So if your teen tries to tell you, no, mom, it's got vitamin B, there's no nicotine, <laughs> I swear, you should ask again, because I guarantee you there is there is nicotine in that vape. And we really need the youth to have the education and the information that they need in order to make an informed decision long before that vape uh, gets in front of them. So we have been rolling out the Catch My Breath Vaping Prevention Program, and it, it is really the only evidence-based uh, vaping prevention program in the country. It has been going like wildfire in schools across uh, the country and really across the world. We're really proud to have Nicole Blaze on our team who is teaching this program out and about in schools and youth programs. If you are somebody who um, you know has a, a, maybe it's a Boy Scout troop or a church youth group or a health class and you want to bring in Nicole, you certainly can give us a call at Sullivan 180 and we'll be glad to send Nicole out to you. But upcoming, we have two opportunities to become a trainer of um, Catch My Breath. And that's really the important piece here. At Sullivan 180, we um, completely respect the fact that we are just a few people uh, and like myself, like moms on a mission, really care about changing the health of the next generation. But we know there's a lot of people out there that want to make a difference and want to connect with youth around these issues. Um, so we're looking for teachers, retired teachers, youth group uh, workers, youth development professionals, and just volunteers, people who want to become part of this movement to get trained in Catch My Breath. And so we've got two trainings coming up. Um, you could pick one day or the other. It's February 16th or March 15th. Those are both Fridays. It's three hours, 1230 to 3.30. You come over to the CVI building. Everything is free of cost, and we give you free access to the curriculum called Catch My Breath that is available for great grades 5 through 12. Uh, we're, we're really just so thrilled to be bringing this to the community, but we need the community to help us with this because the problem is that large. Yeah, and it, it, this uh, effort dovetails with some efforts nationally and also uh, in New York. The New York State Department of Health announced their increasing efforts to reduce vaping among youth with the end goal of eliminating it entirely. Mm-hmm. And they provide some stats. You have some stats here, too. And the thing that I found interesting is what you kind of alluded to earlier is that most kids try this because they're curious or a friend tried it. 
and they they also use it according to DOH officials in New York because it's um they're feeling anxious, stressed, mm-hmm. or depressed. Yeah, and then they get this kind of buzz from the nicotine. That's very so brief. That's very yeah, and, and then it changes things. It actually you know they call them depression sticks for a reason because you may get that very quick lift, but then after that we know that vapes are connected to lots of uh, mental health issues for youth from depression, anxiety, stress, all of that. Um, you know, it's not being relieved by the vape. The vape is, in fact, causing these issues or exacerbating these problems, um, and particularly those for youth that are already struggling with those problems. Yeah, and then with these, fun, not fun, but these these names that are like targeted to youth. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm an old man. Bananarama was a band when yeah. I was growing up. <laughs> uh, so like these names, the Elf Bar, right? And, yeah, yeah, they um, they think that they're like they're almost like candy or or fun yeah. instead of like dangerous. They they look like candy, and I you know I really put a charge out to our gas station owners to take a look at their registers. Um, this is this is cigarettes all over again. It is the same yeah. marketing tactics. Big Tobacco knows exactly what they're doing because they already did it once, and now they're doing it again. And it's just it's so unfair as a mom who's struggling with a kid who is vaping and who has vaped on and off for several years now i'm just frustrated for him you know he he knows the dangers of it but now he's hooked because these vapes have twice the amount of nicotine as cigarettes so imagine how hard it was for all of our friends and family 30 you know 40 years ago to try to quit cigarettes these kids are are having twice the struggle because it's twice the addictive nicotine Mm -hmm. and catch my breath the youth vaping prevention program is a peer-reviewed evidence-based uh, based youth program developed by the University of Texas at Houston. Um, some of the things that are interesting out of this is that seven out of eight students said they're likely, less likely, sorry, to use e-cigarettes after participating in this Catch My Breath program. What is it about the program that is so impactful? Oh, I'm so, I'm so glad that you asked that question. And, you know, certainly Nicole, who's out teaching the program in the community, will tell you that the, the students at the end of the program, you know, they, they have they have new skill sets. So when they're offered that vape in the moment, they can really think about how can they either avoid that situation altogether? How can they refuse the vape? Or how can they get out of the situation? You know, does it mean that that maybe they just need to say, oh, you know what, I got to go, I got to go to the bathroom, and they get out of the situation quick? Or do they have a fact that they know now about vaping that they didn't know before? And they can say it to the, the team that's offering say, no, I'm not going to do it, because I'm playing basketball, and I really need my lungs full force when I'm out they're on the court. They have all sorts of new information. They also know what's in those vapes because a lot of the kids before Catch My Breath think that there's water in the vapes because it looks like vapor. There is no water in these vapes and the kids are t- completely blown away to learn that there's things like formaldehyde, uh, nickel, cadmium, you know, all of these toxic metals are actually in these vapes and going into their lungs. So they learn a ton in the program. And it it is between four and five weeks that we continue to come out and visit. Nicole comes back each week, regardless of how difficult those kids can be. She keeps coming back. And at the end, they have they they get a certificate, but much more than that, they get some really valuable skills about a life changing um, habit that they don't want to develop. I had the opportunity yesterday to be at Sullivan West High School for a career fair. And one of my observation was these kids travel in packs. Yes. <laughs> they all come, they come to you together. So how do you, how do you approach getting them into the program? That's a great question. So we really do go to the schools and the youth groups. So we, we have been very engaged with the Boys and Girls Club and taught the program in several, um, after school programs with the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, we've been at RJK. We have been at BOCES in their alternative education programs. Um, so we've, we've really been out and about, but the, the way we really get this to grow is by these trainings. So the school resource officers are all signed up to take this program in March. We have multiple school nurses, uh, health teachers, gym teachers. Those that can use this curriculum actually has part of their core, common core curriculum because it meets standards. So they can use this program and implement it in the classroom. It's meeting their common core standards. And BOCES is actually offering CTLEs for all the teachers that come and take this training. Well, the good thing, too, is that there's no cost for this training as well. It's free. That's my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) I love everything free, and this should be free. We need the the teachers to have this information. And there's more information at Sullivan180.org. Also, uh, to learn more about that program, too, uh, Mm catchmybreath.org. Another big effort for you is uh, Sullivan Warrior Teens. This is great. Looking for high school students who are ready to be warriors for health. Yes. What does that mean? You got it. So, you know, you just talked about it. Hey, students move in packs, and they do. (laughs) They move in packs. They influence each other big time. And so 
we're looking for some some high school students that really want to be a part of this empowering a healthier generation movement. And uh, they're going to become warrior teens. Over the next four months, they will attend a different film or a documentary each month at Bethelwood Center for the Arts about a health issue that we're dealing with here in Sullivan County. So, of course, um, the first film is Nick Sick, The Dangers of Youth Vaping. The um, second film is Game Changers, which is all about nutrition and how a plant-based diet really impacts our bodies and our, our, our health. The third film is called A Silent Voice. It's about mental health and bullying. And the last film is Screenagers Under the Influence. It is a film about social media use and its its kind of effect on the brain in terms of um, setting up the brain for future addictions. So the the film series itself, the teens come in once a month. They watch a film in the beautiful uh, museum theater at Bethel Woods, really cushy seats. Um, they enjoy the film. Then they come out. They have a plant-powered lunch out in the events gallery, and they meet community partners from Cornell Cooperative Extension, Catholic Charities, NAMI, Engine. Um, the list goes on. All sorts of community partners that want to be a part of the solution with those warrior teens and help them. I like your uh, flyer here. It says, watch movies, fuel your mind and body, inspire others. I mean, I, I'll go watch some movies. Cool. Hey, we'll that. have you, Tim. <laughs> Maybe you can I'm be a warrior old. team, too. <laughs> but then also uh, the folks that uh, the teens that complete the film series uh, get uh, a gift card from partners. They sure uh, do. They get a $100 gift card and they got get lots of swag from our partners. So all you need to do if you're a high school student that wants to be a warrior team, talk to your guidance counselor about signing up for the program. And uh, we look forward to having you at Bethel Woods. Or, or mom and dad or, or grandma, grandma, mm-hmm. grandpa, aunt, uncle who's listening who has a, a candidate there. You can go to Sullivan180.org for more information. These are great programs. Again, uh, the uh, Catch My Breath Foundation's uh, Global Foundation program uh, is February 16th and March 20, or sorry, March 15th and February 16th. Uh, and then also the sessions start February 23rd for the Sullivan Warrior Teens. More information, of course, at Sullivan180.org. You got it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amanda Langsitter. Thank you always. Thank you for allowing us to be here and talking about everything that empowers a healthier generation. It means a lot. Of course. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, The Watershed, a film about the Esopus Creek, uh, it's debuting uh, this Sunday. And we'll get more information, a preview from the filmmaker and some of the educational folks who are behind it. This is Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Farm Arts Collective, located on Willow West Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania. Farm Arts Collective's programs intersect the practices of farming, performance, food, and ecology. FarmArtsCollective.org From The Community Foundation of Orange and Sullivan A publicly supported philanthropic institution CFOSNY.org And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org Music from a musician's perspective, I'm Kathy Geary, and on Now and Then, we explore the artistry of the singer-songwriter. Now and Then, Saturday afternoons at 3 on Radio Catskill. Listen local. Thank you for all the ways you help WJFF Radio Catskill. Your support sustains the news, music, and local voices that make up WJFF. It's only possible because of your generosity. Help keep it going. Consider signing up to be a sound supporter to make sure Radio Catskill has your constant support. Go to WJFFradio.org. And thank you for supporting public radio in the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. This week in This American Life, Madonna decided to find a husband. She gamed out how to find the right one. Took out an ad, asked men to send the credentials, tax returns. I don't believe that just falling blindly in love is the answer. Don't fall in love. This is what has caused all the problems in the world. No doesn't agree with that approach. The man she married, how to fall in love this week. Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. 
The Ashokan Watershed Stream Management Program is hosting a film premiere of exploring the Upper Esophis Creek Watershed at the Pine Hill Community Center. It's tomorrow. I misspoke in the tease. Uh, following the screening, there's going to be a panel Q&A with the production team and the watershed ed- educators who created the film. Tim Koch is a Tim Koch is stream education leader for the Ashokan Watershed Stream Management Program at Cornell Cooperative Extension. Ulster County is joining us on the phone right now. Tim, good morning. <laughs> Good morning. It's, and it's Koch, like the old uh, Ed Koch, the old mayor of New York. Got it. Thank you for that. And I've, I think I've correctly pronounced Esophis Creek. Is that correct? Yes. I don't yep. want the, I don't want the folks coming after me on that one. I apologize for, for butchering your names. We're trying to get Amanda, who is the filmmaker from, uh, the, the film and also the, uh, Green County Soil and Water Conservation District on the phone. And if she, uh, gets to us, we'll, we'll talk to her about it. But first, let's, let's start with you, Tim. Uh, the creek, although it's called a creek, uh, the Esopus is one of the primary rivers in the Catskills. Can you tell us about its importance in the region, its size and, and, you know, where it's located? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll start with a, a question that I get asked often, you know, in my job and from some other folks that know I, I work with rivers and streams is, um, you know, when does a creek become a river? When does a stream become a creek? And what's a brook? And, um, you know, all these different words that we have for streams, um, you know, in the, in the world of stream science, they are all streams. So that's sort of the catch-all word. Um, the big point is that there's there's no definition, there's no official point at which a creek becomes a river or or anything. Um, you know, if you spent any time up in the Adirondacks, there's lots of brooks. If you go down in the Appalachians, lots of them are called runs. And then in the sort of eastern part of New York here, as probably most folks know, there's a lot of kills. That being the Dutch word for river. Um, and sort of shows that Dutch influence on the region from the 17th century settlement. Um so, yeah, the Esopus Creek uh, is about 65 miles long. It, it runs from uh, Winnesook Lake, is sort of the um, colloquial source of the Esopus, although as a you know, scientist, I'll tell you there's no definitive one source for any river. It's sort of this uh, diverse network of, of various sources. So there's no one point where a river starts, technically. Um, but generally, people say it starts at Winnesuk Lake, which is on the, the sl- uh, slopes of Slide Mountain, the largest mountain in the Catskills. And it runs 65 miles uh, down to eventually reach the Hudson River uh, at Saugerties. Um, so, you know, it's a decent-sized river, like you said, one of the primary rivers in the Catskills. Um, and it's hugely important, and it's been hugely important for you know, probably thousands of years. Um, you can go up all the way back. Uh, there's lots some interesting resources about um, how the native inhabitants of the area utilized the creek, related to it, um, you know, not only drew sustenance from it, but also drew sort of spiritual connection and, and that from it. Um, and then once sort of European civilization did start, you know, we, we start to think of those kind of more common Western uses for rivers, um, so one of the early things up in the Catskills was, was tanning all the hemlock trees. And so materials and supplies were all transported by the river. And some of the really early industry in the United States during the Industrial Revolution happened right in Saugerties um, at, a, at a mill that was created on top of a natural waterfall so at the lower bit of the Asopus Creek. Um, another interesting thing is this is... The Catskills and the Esopus Creek were, were sort of one of the very first areas in the country where outdoor recreation became a thing. You know, um, as trains kind of came up and, and became more common, city people from, from New York City, you know, started to come up here just to recreate. Mm-hmm. So you, you were able to come up for a day, a couple of days, you know, have a little mini vacation, get out of the city, escape the hustle and bustle. You know, come up and fish and relax and enjoy the creek. And, uh, you know, in more modern times, obviously it's a water supply now. So the upper Sopus Creek is part of the west of Hudson, New York City water supply watershed. Mm-hmm. Supplies about 40% of New York City's daily water use, uh, which is about approximately 1 billion, with a B, billion gallons of water per day. And uh, on top of that, you know, uh, one that's becoming more important as we sort of look into the current era of climate change, 
is this is a really unique cold water fishery. So it, it supports uh, these cold water fishes, primarily rainbow trout, brown trout, and brook trout. And that really supports a, a local ecotourism economy through the, the whole region. That's uh, yeah. just immensely important. And Tim, so, Tim, I don't want to interrupt you, but I think we have Amanda on the phone now. Amanda, did you, did you make it in here? Yes, I did. Hi, <laughs> Amanda Cavanellis, who is the filmmaker uh, that we're talking about the film, the uh, exploring the Upper Esopus Creek watershed. Uh, Amanda, thanks for getting here. Sorry, we we're having some trouble reaching you. Uh, Tim, doing a good job of filling in there. Uh, can you tell us about the film uh, and the concept of watershed that you're trying to get to people? The, the explain these concepts. Do you think folks understand these concepts of the watershed and some of the other concepts? And how do you attempt to explain that? Yeah. Um, well, I think I think there's definitely a growing understanding of what a watershed is and what we mean when we say the words watershed or drainage basin. Um, but there are definitely times when I go in for a school visit and I ask the students what they think the word watershed means. And the most common answer is still um, a shed that holds water. Uh, which is really sweet and kind of a fun image to think about. Um, but these videos, I think, really help support the teaching of like the true definition of watershed and the understanding of the fact that we all live in a watershed. Um, so how we care for the land and the streams around us really matters. Um, that, so that's the main um, focus in this particular video. We also try to, try to you know, discuss some of the changes in um, stream pattern geometry as we go through from source to mouth, you know, yeah. from from the mountaintops down to the reservoir. Um, so just trying to really show examples of where we see those changes within the landscape. Yeah, and then visually, you know, as you said, going from the mountaintops into the reservoirs, uh, what were some of the challenges filming this? Um, you know, you've got some sweeping cinematography. How do you accomplish that? Um, well, we worked with a really wonderful team of videographers with North Guild. Chris Rom, in particular, um, helped us uh, take care of all that. Um, we I think the most challenging part was getting, you know, land access. Um, a lot of these are, you know, private or DEP lands. Um, so um, just getting, you know, written confirmation that everyone's okay with us accessing those lands. But then, um, you know, some of these sites we really have to hike into and carry all of our equipment. Um, so I think those are the main challenges. And then Chris did a really wonderful job helping out with the uh, the drone footage and just has such a great eye. Yeah. And Tim, how does this film help support your educational efforts? And then the, you know, the goals of the watershed stream management program of Cornell, and then also NYC's uh, department of environmental protection to support the watershed. Yeah, this is a, a great film for building sort of this foundational understanding of, of what a watershed is, um, but not in a sort of, you know, in school sense of what's the definition and, you know, does that count for the right answer? I think of it more as, you know, what I think this film does a really great job of is showing the interconnectedness. So not only between the streams and the landscape, which is maybe how you think of a watershed, you know, in the sense that if you want to care for the stream, you have to care for the land that supplies the water to the stream. But it also does a really great job of talking, of, of discussing how, you know, the Asopus Creek is not this standalone distinct thing that is separate from the other streams, what we call tributaries, that feed into it. So as the film moves down the watershed and it, and it stops at every major tributary, you really start to understand that, okay, well, you know, that what's going on in the Birch Creek watershed, which is a sub-watershed of the Asopus, is going to have a huge influence on the Asopus itself. Each time a new tributary comes in, it, it creates this whole new really, and that's different from what's upstream. So this whole idea of interconnectedness, I think the film does an amazing job of doing that, and that's really one of our educational messages. So the Ashokan Watershed Stream Management Program and uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension, who's one of the local partners in that program, um, we work with communities and residents within the Ashokan Watershed to protect and restore the streams that feed the reservoir. You know, primarily 
the our partner, the other partner, the City Department of Environmental Protection, who's very interested in water quality. But as a local partner to this program, you know, we take that water quality focus and we kind of expand it to include ecological integrity, flood resilience, community resilience. And, and something we're really starting to focus on a bit more is sort of the aesthetic and spiritual values of the creek, you know, what in science we call non-consumptive uses, ways that you can enjoy the creek without taking anything away from it. Really, the only thing you take away from it is, you know, good feelings, uh, reciprocity. And so that's something we're really trying to focus on in the program in the coming years. Yeah. Well, you both work in, in water with the environment, uh, soil, water, streams. But what was one of the most surprising or interesting things uh, you discovered uh, from this project, from working on this project? Well, I, I can start because I'll just basically sort of reiterate something Amanda said that uh, you know, we learned that getting access to the stream as you're going down the entire 24 miles you know, is, is not very easy. These access points aren't as prevalent as you might think. And you know, Amanda really had to do a lot of work to figure out where she was going to access the stream and how they were going to do it. They had to hike in. Um, and I'll just say that's something, you know, we have a stream access and recreation working group. And one of their core missions is to improve public access to the creek. That, that was uh, something that surprised me a bit, how difficult it was to get there. And, and Amanda? Um, you know, I no really big surprises, but again, just because I've done a lot of field work in this watershed, but just really the variation in landscapes as we go through forest systems and then valleys, flat valleys, and um, it's really just such a special, special place. And I want to remind folks again, exploring the Upper Esophis Creek Watershed film screening is tomorrow at the Pine Hill Community Center. There's more information about the screening at pinehillcommunitycenter.org. Tim, where can folks find out more about your education efforts? And then Amanda, also, I'll ask you the same because you work with Green County Soil and Water Conservation, too. But Tim, where where can folks go get more information? Yeah, the best way to do it, and especially hear about advertisements for events like this, is is really good to go to Instagram. Uh, the handle is uh, Ashokan Streams. Our Facebook, we're at AWSMP Ulster. And our website is AshokanStreams.org. And Amanda? Yeah, um, so same Facebook, Instagram, website. Um, we are GCSWCD on both Instagram and Facebook. And our website is GCSWCD.com. All right. Thank you both. We've been speaking with uh, Tim Koch, Stream Education Leader for the Ashokan Watershed Stream Management Program at Cornell Cooperative Extension, Ulster County, and filmmaker Amanda Cadmanellis, who is also the Education and Outreach Coordinator at the Green County Soil and Water Conservation District. You guys wear a lot of hats. You do great work. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we'll take a break. And when we come back, My Borscht Belt Life Lived, Lost, and Loved. It's a book by Bart Charlo, who grew up in the Catskills into a hotel family. We'll talk to him next. This is Radio Chatskill. Greetings. I'm Matt Hurtado. Join me on a journey where pixels meet melodies and controllers become conductors. This is Virtual Soundscapes, a show that transports you to the sonic realms of video game magic. In this journey, we'll uncover the hidden treasures of video game soundtracks from the classics to modern day and speak with industry veterans. Join me for the debut of Virtual Soundscapes on February 15th at 10 p.m. Only on Radio Catskill. Listen local. This music can reach further than we've ever imagined into worlds that have so little to do with our culture, the culture of Ashkenazi Jews. The music transcends. It takes hold. Someone hears it, falls in love with it. That, that's why I'm so happy to share this with you. I'm Aaron Bendich, and I play a selection of Jewish recordings on Borscht Beat on Radio Catskill. Sunday afternoon at 1. Radio Catskill supporters include the Sterling Business and Technology Park, located at Exit 17 on Interstate 84 in Northeast Pennsylvania, offering opportunities to locate or expand businesses on property zoned for manufacturing and other uses. More information at sterlingbusinesspark.com. And listeners like you who donate at wjffradio.org.
Welcome back to Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Bart Charlo was born into the life of a Borscht Belt Catskills hotel family, and his first book, A Catskill Carnival, My Borscht Belt Life Lived, Lost, and Loved, is a memoir of his early years and in this unique setting, coming to terms with it and cherishing its life lessons. He'll be talking about it in a virtual book talk for the Time and Valley's Museum Sunday, and he's joining us now for a preview. Good morning, Bart. Good morning, Tim. It's great to be with you. Thank you for being here. Now, you were born into the Borscht Belt, as we say. Uh, can you tell us about the Charlo family's Hotel Irvington, which was in South Fallsburg? I definitely can. Actually, the Charlos were some of the original Borscht Belt hotel people. So my uh, grandfather and grandmother had immigrated from Eastern Europe, and they went up to the Catskills as part of sort of a, a farming experiment, you know, for Jewish farmers. And farming, as you probably know, being up there isn't exactly the best business to be in in the Catskills. So like everybody else, because people wanted to come up in the city, they rented rooms in their, you know, their barns. And uh, eventually, by the 1920s, they were able to buy into one of the first hotels that they owned, which was the Saxony. It used to be called the Glass. In, in Fallsburg, and then eventually they bought the Irvington, which is where I was conceived and into which I grew up. <laughs> and so growing up there, you know, what was that like, you know, having this uh, whole atmosphere around you? You, you know, the, the title of the book is uh, Catskill Carnival. Is that what it was like? <laughs> it was very much a carnival, and that's the way I explain it to people. When I tell people we were carnies, but we just didn't move the tents, I'm truly not kidding. That was what life was like. You know, folks were working in the Catskills, working around the Catskills, heard about the Catskills, maybe been guests in the Catskills. That is not at all like what it is to be inside the circus tent and uh, cleaning up after the elephants, as I used to say. <laughs> so, it, it really was a wild and woolly time, but it was also a lot of very hard work. And it was just grit. You know, it was real life in a small family business that was unique. Well, and uh, as you said, small family business, I imagine it's sort of the same routine every day, get up and, and do the same kinds of things to service the hotel. Not exactly. The Borscht Belt, for the most part, was seasonal. Mm. So basically, you ran from weekends in June to July 4th, you know, throughout the week, up through Labor Day. And then for the Jewish holidays, they reopened. That was our pattern at the Hotel Irvington. And uh, it was a pattern of most of the hotels in bungalow colonies. The few really big ones that people know of that were winterized, you know, they ran all year. So their routine was pretty much the same, except the crowd would change by the week. But for us, we lived a country life on one hand, very country. <laughs> and on the other hand, we lived this crazy, frenetic resort. It was pretty wild. In the summer, it was very, very busy for my folks they would easily put in 16-hour days, day after day after day after day. And even in the off-season, there was so much preparation and sales and everything to keep the, the property going and ready for the next onslaught of visitors. It was busy. And you've said uh, in some interviews, I think, that you were kind of ambivalent about growing up here during that time of the Borscht Belt era. And it wasn't until later that you realized how it enriched your life. Talk about what, you're, what you call your evolving relationship with the era. Well, that's an interesting topic. The, most folks don't understand the word ambivalence. It does not mean indifference. Indifference means you don't care either way. Ambivalence means you care too much, but in two opposing directions, like a push-pull kind of thing. So that was the way I was. On the one hand, I loved aspects of the hotel life and I love aspects of the country life. On the other hand, there were things about it that were very frustrating and even scary. So I saw the business consume and eventually kill my parents. Um, that part of it was not fun. And if you were working in the hotel, it was work. That's what most people don't realize. You go to a restaurant today, okay, and they're serving maybe 50 people, and you're out there in the restaurant, and you're having a nice mellow time, and they bring you some nice food, and you go home. You have no idea what's going on in the kitchen, how crazy it is, how maddening it is, how angry it can become, how hot it is. And that's the best metaphor I can give you because behind the scenes of what the guests saw was a ton of really, really, really hard work. And those are the parts that are hard for people. It was hard for me. But it was wonderful in other ways. You know, 
in, in the winter, I was a shy, nerdy kind of kid. In the summer, I was a prince of the hotel. <laughs> so I got to change my personality with the season. That was kind of fun. So when I say ambivalence, yeah, right. part of it, right. you know. <laughs> so, you know, talking about your family and the hard work that that was required of them to run this hotel and, and then just exploring all of that uh, in your relationship, is that what the inspiration was to write that and put this into the on paper? Actually, no. The inspiration was the evolution of my frustration with what other people had written oh. and mostly with what they had not so there have been several revivals of interest in the Borscht Belt. You know, the, the Dirty Dancing era, all of the, the uh, Catskill Entertainer, you know, kind of shows that went on for a while, and more recently, Mrs. Maisel, waves of people getting interested. And there have been a few books about it, but for the most part, everybody was concentrating on only two things, the glitz and the glamour. So it was the glamour of the entertainment world, which was very real, and it was the glitz of a very few major, you know, fortress hotels, as we used to call them, like the Concord and the Grossingers, for example, or Kutcher's. And that was not most people's experience, not just us hotel owners, but also the guests. Most of the guests stayed in little bungalow colonies. They stayed in mid-sized hotels like our Hotel Irvington in South Fallsburg, which wasn't small, but it wasn't as big as those fortress hotels. And so as I looked at what was written, I got increasingly frustrated that people weren't telling the story that I knew. My friend Patty Posner, who grew up very close to us uh, at the Brickman Hotel and ran it with her father, you know, in many ways until 1986, wrote a wonderful book, came out last year. And Patty kept saying to me, when are you going to write your book? And finally, one day, it just burst out of me. It's like, I have to tell the story of what it really felt like from the inside, the part that people don't see in the smaller hotels or the mid-sized hotels that were the real experience. Mm. So, so now that you have this, uh, you know, behind the glamour experience, I guess, you know, the real experience of these mid-sized hotels and maybe the more real experience of a, a majority of people that came up here to enjoy them, has your relationship with this era continued to evolve? Oh, definitely. People are coming out of the woodwork to tell me their stories, <laughs> to thank me for writing it, you know, with memories and things that bring up actually at this point in my life a lot of joy. Tim, one of the things I did not understand and was part of my evolution was what the guest experience was. And until I was a middle-aged man taking my own children to an all-inclusive resort, and I finally understood, it was like, oh, my God this is pretty good for, for what I need. That's when I really started to get what the Catskills were about. Once I look back, I realize nobody had experiences like this. This was a crazy, crazy time in a real wild and wacky place. Um, the sex, the food, you know, the entertainment, it was different from everybody else's. And when you, you said earlier that this eventually, you know, led to your parents' death, like did they, they work themselves into the into the ground here with this hotel and then it eventually close? Is, is, does this provide you with some kind of closure as well? I didn't get closure on it really until I went back a few times as, uh, as an adult. Uh, my father really, well, let, me, let me back up a minute. My father and his two brothers, along with my grandparents, ran the hotel, and boy, did it run them, you know. And they had a, another business. They had a painting company business at the same time, so they were busy all the time. My youngest uncle died, and then my oldest uncle, who was a bull of a man, also died, leaving my father alone with, you know, two of the women who didn't get along to try and run the place. And then he died. And that was, it was just an eye opener to me. I was running my first business, my first agency down in North Carolina, flew back from my father's funeral. It was the beginning of the hotel season. And my mother and my aunt are looking at me in the office. My father's just in the ground, literally. The bungalow people are banging on the front desk for stuff. And they said, do you want to take over the business? And I said, are you crazy? They said, you always told me it, the business is killing my father. There's the proof. Go sell it. Mm. So that was important to me to be able to start it. But I didn't get closure until going back years later and looking at how the property evolved. The land was still there. Many of the buildings were still there, but it was taken over by new owners who eventually 
changed it to the way they wanted to live it. And that's when I really started to see what was what I had lost. And it was very, very special. So I've been working to regain it. So you're, you're doing this talk on Sunday at the time in the Valley's Museum uh, here in the heart of the Borscht Belt. Uh, even though you're not here personally, what does that mean to you giving that talk uh, here on Sunday? Well, you can't see the grin I've got from ear to ear because it actually goes back to radio near you. <laughs> when I was a senior in high school, um, I was the uh, writer for our radio club. And, you know, all of the local high schools had their radio club on WVOS. Oh, yeah. There you go. You Still got a little around. memory there. Still around. <laughs> so if you think about the radio clubs in those days, they could have bored you to death. If you were an insomniac, you'd go to sleep. You know, all they wanted to hear was somebody droning on about, here's the homecoming queen, we're having a dance next week, and here's the latest basketball scores. And I can't live like that. I was writing these really satirical, creative scripts that were fun. And what happened was one of my uh, coworkers there was reading the script on air, and where it said girls, he kept substituting the word broads. So the, the radio technician calls up the station manager. The station manager calls up the school principal, and the school principal calls me in. So you know, I, I, I go back to that when I, when I think about it. Um, but in, in reality, to know where you are, to know the beauty of the mountains that has never really faded, um, and to be able to remember such a magical time, you're helping me with my evolution. So thank you. Yeah. Oh, and where can folks get more information about you and your book, uh, Catskill Carnival, My Borscht Belt, Life Lived, Lost, and Loved? Well, best place is to go straight to Amazon where you can purchase the book. Uh, there's a blurb on there about my bio. I've got a long, long history. I'm an old guy at this point, and I worked worked running organizations and doing all sorts of things for 53 years. If you get that curious, you can Google me. But I'll tell you quite honestly, the best way is to just read the book. It's a good read. It's easy. And I voiced it so that you can hear my voice. You can hear me speaking just as you and I are in the room. So it's easy to read, and there's a ton of information in there. Get the book! <laughs> Bart A. Charlo, uh, the book is A Catskill Carnival, My Borscht Belt Life, Lived, Lost, and Loved. A virtual talk at the Time and the Valleys Museum is this Sunday. You can find out more information about that at timeandthevalleysmuseum.org. And Bart, I want to, Bart, I want to thank you for joining us, but especially thank you for joining us because uh, folks don't know you're calling us from California, so we appreciate you getting up early to talk to us this morning. <laughs> Listen, I learned to get up early and work hard in the hotel, so this is a snap. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Tim. All right. Thank you. All right. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. Uh, tomorrow on Radio Chat Skill, we will uh, talk to the Wayne County Conservation District about their efforts. Also, a couple of arts events, Cornerstone Arts and uh, Arts Nest have some openings. We'll get a preview and you can find out all of our information from our previous episodes at our website and all of our locally produced programming. Just go to WJFFradio.org. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Radio Catskill supporters include SUNY Sullivan, a community college in the Sullivan Catskills focused on preparing students for the future. More information at SUNYSullivan.edu. Livingston Manor. Dining, shopping, and the arts at the Gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com And listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, host of On Point. Each hour of On Point is a journey to help make complicated issues understandable. Every issue brings more questions, like how did we get here? Why is this happening? And what does it mean? And how do we fix it? So let's figure this out and make sense of the world together. Join me weekday mornings at 11 here on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. This is Radio Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR. 
The forecast uh, for the area, high of 30, uh, sorry, high of 44 today. It's 36 sunny skies. Uh, sunshine continuing through tomorrow with uh, a high near 48. Uh, tonight's low around 25. On Point is coming up next, followed by Democracy Now! And at 1, it's Radio Lab on Radio Catskill. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected with the local edition. Weeknights at 6, right after All Things Considered. The Local Edition, only on Radio Catskill. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill, your NPR station for the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. 